From the Aspen Institute, this is Aspen Ideas To Go. I'm Trisha Johnson. The Aspen Institute is an educational and policy studies organization that fosters values-based leadership and provides a nonpartisan venue for dealing with critical issues of the day. That life comes to an end is hardly news, but public conversations about death seem to be growing more urgent. When California's legislature passed a right to die bill early in September, it marked a major milestone in the journey of Dan Diaz. He has devoted himself to the cause since his wife, Brittany Maynard, took her own life with physician-prescribed drugs in Oregon last November. Diaz spoke about their journey and his subsequent advocacy for patient rights this past summer at Spotlight Health. He is joined by B.J. Miller, Executive Director of the Zen Hospice Project in San Francisco. Miller is a proponent of palliative care, which grew out of the hospice concept, but as Miller puts it, is still an underdeveloped and deeply misunderstood field. Sam Cargbo is a director in Sierra Leone's Ministry of Health. He explains how a less fearful attitude about death in Africa posed challenges in the fight against Ebola. Yet in most other cases, he says, the country's approach is a more human-centered model than in the West. Journalist Courtney Martin moderates the discussion. So I'm Courtney Martin. I'm a journalist uh, by training Uh, I have written a couple of books and do freelance writing for a bunch of different places, but have a weekly columnist, uh, or a weekly column at the moment at a place called On Being, um, which is a radio show, Peabody, um, award-winning radio show with Krista Tippett. There are some On Being fans in the audience, I think, which is awesome. Yay. Um, So... Uh, And I co-founded something called the Solutions Journalism Network, uh, the aim of which is to get journalists to do as much rigorous, compelling reporting on solutions as they do about problems in the world. So this conversation is exciting to me on many, many different levels. Um, You know, this this panel, we have an hour together to talk about one of the most, like, profound, complex challenges of our time. So we all decided as a group that we're basically just going to say up front, we are not going to be comprehensive. We are probably going to disappoint you in various ways in terms of what we actually address. But we pro- promise to be interesting and genuine and empathic, um, which is who these, these men are. I feel so grateful to be beside them. Um, and I'm going to introduce you to each of them um, sort of as we get into the conversation with them. But I want to do a little bit of scene setting first, because um, this is such a big topic, and people come at it with such different kind of experiences and, and emotional um, temperature checks, etc. cetera. Um, the first breaking news item is we are all mortal. So that's, everyone should know, turns out we're all going to die. So that's, let's just start there. We have a commonality among us. Um, I bring that up because actually it feels like we're experiencing this zeitgeisty moment where people are admitting that for the first time in a very public way. Um, some of you may have read Atul Gawande's beautiful book, Um, on being mortal recently, which I think has created a bit of a conversation. Um, There's something called uh, the dinner party movement, which has people meeting together across the country and talking about death, um, talking about their own deaths, um, talking about what they want. Um, We have, of course, the the silver tsunami is one, some language I've heard used, the elder boom, whatever you want to call it, where we have this huge aging population that's um, going to be really facing a lot of these issues in a big way for the first time. And so it's so important that we actually pay attention to those demographic realities. Um, We have both this aging baby baby boomers, but also longer lifespans. I pulled up a couple of statistics that I thought were important. Um, Those two forces are going to combine to double the population of Americans age 65 and older during the next 25 years to about 72 million. And by 2030, older adults will account for roughly 20% of the population. Now, we can't have this conversation without talking about money, right? And it's projected that the total U.S. healthcare expenditures will reach $5 trillion by 2022. According to the National Institute of Health, as of 2012, 5% of the most seriously ill Americans account for more than 50% of healthcare spending. So when you think about these questions of how we die and sort of the underlying economic functions underneath it, it it has huge ramifications in this country and beyond. And we are lucky enough to have the beyond on this panel, which is um, Dr. Samuel Carbo, um, affectionately known as SAS, to many of his friends here in the middle. And so we are going to have a global perspective. um, But obviously, a lot of us are coming to the table with more information about the US um, setting. So so, and I think that the cool thing is we actually have a lot to learn from people 
um, in the global south in particular about dignifying death practices. So we're going to surface some of that as well. Um, in terms of this zeitgeist, one of the things that has really created a new conversation is actually an incredibly courageous woman um, who many of you have probably heard of and her husband. And we happen to be lucky enough to have that man sitting next to us. Um, Brittany Maynard uh, was a 29-year-old adventurer and courageous spirit who opened up her dying process to the world in order to push the Right to Die movement forward. I'm sure many of you have seen her brave videos. They are just absolutely stunning. Um, and we are so lucky to have Dan Diaz uh, with us today to talk about both her legacy but also the work that is now moving forward through a lot of his own courageous advocacy. Um, Dan amazingly has a, you know, a traditional corporate job. He's a salesman. We've had these awesome conversations about how he's adapting his sales knowledge into his lobbying with legislators now, which is just very cool. But he, you know, this path, you know, sort of appeared in front of him, and, and he's been making meaning out of what was obviously an incredibly tragic experience. So we're going to open up by hearing Dan talk a little bit about Brittany and her legacy and some of the advocacy work he's doing. So we'll start, start with you, Dan. Thank you. <clears throat> Thanks, and I appreciate the opportunity to uh, share Brittany's story. Actually, if you want, um, Kurt, um, just as a reminder, picture's worth a thousand words. Um, <clears throat> So Brittany and I, we met um, in 2007. Um, we were um, married in September of 2012. Um, we'd been married for about a year and a half. And on January 1st, 2014, we found out that she had a brain tumor, and a large one at that. Um, she endured a brain surgery at UCSF Medical Center, where my new good friend, BJ Miller, uh, works. Um, <clears throat> 60 days after that brain surgery at the first MRI um, um, appointment, uh, and the first MRI, the follow-up, the first time we, we had an image, um, the neuro-oncologist informed us that the tumor had grown 15, 20% within those two months. Um, at that point, um, uh, they informed us that she had six months to live. So. <clears throat> Um, by the way, the emotion just comes up. Don't let that freak you out, it'll pass. <laughs> um, so at that point, Brittany decided that, well, with six months to live and, and knowing how the tumor was going to kill her, um, because I had a, a friend of mine who her father died of a brain tumor, a glioblastoma, um, and um, he was tortured to death by that. Um, uh, she had a friend who, um, her friend's father uh, also died from a grade three or grade four um, brain tumor. And so we were very well aware, and Brittany was aware, of what was coming for her. Um, <clears throat> she was already suffering from um, pain that could not be controlled by um, medication, um, seizures that, of course, would happen whenever. And uh, what was coming for her next, which is what our friend's parents uh, experienced that um, she'd blow a pupil, then the other, she'd be blind. Um, uh, a stroke, depending on where the blood or the oxygen, uh, what part of the brain is lacking uh, oxygen during the stroke, um, she would lose motor cognitive function, um, become paralyzed, and have to die that way. Um, <clears throat> So the, the decision to move to Oregon was simply her acknowledging that that's what was her most likely, the, the likely way that she was going to die, and basically just refusing to accept uh, that she would have to die that way. Um, she, she took that control back from the tumor. The unfortunate part was that, well, we had to move to Oregon in order for her to have that control. Mm -hmm. um, so. We hop in the car, <clears throat> load up the U-Haul actually, hop in the U-Haul and drive 600 miles north to Portland. Um, we establish a new medical team at OHSU and everything you do when you're moving, um, utilities and um, you know, try to establish a sense of community by furniture for this rental, this house that we were renting. So um, all of a sudden we found ourselves in this new location and um, she spoke with uh, a friend who 
kind of is, is interested in these social type issues, they put together the, this video and on October 6th there was all this media attention about this 29 year old that um, had um, taken these steps to be able to control her own dying process. Um, the process in Oregon, for those, I'll, I'll be brief about this, it's a death with dignity uh, law, which has been in Oregon for 20 years. It passed via a voter initiative. It's been three years, uh, uh, three years in the courts, so it's been in practice for 17 years. And uh, within those 17 years, um, um, the, the, the parameter for somebody to apply for this Two physicians, independent of one another, have to agree this person is terminally ill and will die, most likely, within six months. Uh, they have to be mentally competent. They have to make the request in writing as well as verbally. There's a 15-day waiting period. There are all these safeguards and protections to protect that individual against anything like from coercion or family influence. Or um, And, and I, I mention that because the opposition to this, they like to bring these things up. I know this is suicide. This is It's a slippery slope. And they're so far out of, uh, out of touch with the reality of what Brittany was facing, the process that she went through, and, and, and how this law is administered in Oregon. She felt very protected. Um, so she was uh, applied for and was granted uh, the prescription. Um, and in the end, her message, or, or what she was really fighting for, was two things. A, that only the individual can make this decision for themselves. Um, it's not up to a hospital or um, a politician or the uh, head of some religious organization. Only, only the person can. That's what Brittany said. Only, <clears throat> only I can decide this for myself. Um, and the second thing was that um, the <clears throat> palliative care and hospice system, in most cases, will keep a person comfortable at end of life. But in her case, that wasn't the reality. And as I mentioned, having the first-hand experience of, of our friends, parents who, who died from a brain tumor, um, <clears throat> she knew that she had to take control, hopefully not having to use the medication, but hopefully she would be kept comfortable. Um, but it, it was a very empowering thing that she could be the one in control of her own dying process. Um, <clears throat> so. Um, she died November 1st, so just 10 months after her uh, diagnosis, uh, after we first discovered that she had the tumor. Um, and her death, her death was peaceful. It's exactly what she was um, searching for, right? If you ask anybody, anybody in this room, how would you prefer to die? Most people say, well, I'd <clears throat> I would prefer to die in my sleep not even aware that it's happening. Um, see, I start crying, then you guys start crying, then I cry. <laughs> it's a whole thing. We're, um, we're all right with crying. This crew is okay with crying. So um, on that day, November 1st, um, sequel by the way, for those who are curious, it's a sleeping drug. That's all it is. Before there was Ambien, there was sequel um, and I mean, there's other sleeping meds, but that was one. And uh, sequel taken the way it's normally prescribed, you take one or maybe two of those, you have a good night's sleep, next day you're up and out of them. Taken in larger quantities, well, like it did for her, uh, within five minutes after consuming it, it's, um, oh, by the way, I, I, I failed to mention, the, the two doctors independent of one another have to agree this person is terminally ill, all those things. The, the other part of it, the patient has to self-administer. So there isn't any of this like behind the scenes uh, injected into an IV bag. No, 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 that person is in control, complete control. So it's five ounces of medication which she drinks. Um, she fell asleep within about five minutes, very peaceful. Um, within 30 minutes, her breathing slowed to the point where she passes away. What I mentioned before, if you ask anybody, how would you prefer to die if you had that choice? That's what Brittany got. She was able to. <clears throat> she was able to die peacefully in, in her sleep. 
So um, now as far as um, um, what I continue to work on are the legislative efforts. Um, and in, in California, um, it was the promise that I, I made to Brittany that I would continue to um, uh, fight for this right, uh, for the individual to be in control of their own dying process so that nobody else has to go through what, what she had to go through, what we had to go through. Mm -hmm. Leaving your home in the middle of the chaos of being told that you have six months to live and try to establish a whole new residency, a whole new existence um, in, an, in another state just so that you can pass away peacefully. Um, so my efforts uh, in California, uh, we introduced the bill um, early January, middle of January, and um, um, we've, we've got through the Senate, the uh, Health Committee, Judiciary Committee, appropriations. We got through the Senate floor, which was a huge win. And just before that happened, the California Medical Association, the first uh, state medical association that removed <coughs> um, all opposition to this. So they took a position of neutrality and basically, and the statement uh, from the president of the CMA when they, when they announced this was that this is a decision between the physician and the patient. And they are the ones to decide the best course of action. We have no business interjecting our, you know, our thoughts on this matter. Um, the, the second um, part of, of the statement, which I found to be um, uh, meaningful, was that he also, the president of the CA, CMA, mentioned that um, despite the gold standard of palliative and hospice care, we cannot, in all cases, keep a person comfortable at end of life, um, which sounds exactly what Brittany was saying just a few months before, mm -hmm. that this decision should be hers to make, and that because of what she was suffering from, um, unfortunately, palliative and hospice care was not able to keep her comfortable. Um, so in, in that regard, the uh, legislative efforts move forward, and, and um, they're working well. Uh, um, we're now on the assembly side. We have a bit of a challenge there, I think, but um, hopefully we'll, the, it'll continue moving forward. I keep advocating in, in all states. I've spoken with um, uh, legislators in um, New York, New Jersey, uh, Maine. Um, so that's, that's, that's the story of, of what's brought me now here. Yeah, and, and we should really emphasize this has been a tipping point moment around this kind of legislation. It's what, 23 states now? Right, so since Brittany brought... spoke up, there are now 24 states and the District of Columbia that have um, either introduced legislation or will be introducing legislation. So she certainly made a difference just by her speaking yeah, up. Yeah, an absolute sea change in this conversation. Um, Dan, thank you so much for sharing. You know, conversations about death, even when we finally have them, tend to stand such an abstract level. And I feel like it's such a gift to all of us that you have the courage to give us a real story of such a courageous death. So we really could not be more appreciative. Thank you. Um, BJ, I wondered if you could sort of pick up on the palliative care piece, because I think we've talked about that's something that a lot of people have a big misunderstanding about what palliative care even is, and that's such a huge part of this conversation. Um, I should say, BJ Miller, here at the end, um, is the executive director of the Zen Hospice Project, which is in San Francisco, and it's an organization bridging spiritual and humanitarian approaches to end-of-life care. It's kind of a test case. I've been there, and it's a stunning place. Um, you kind of walk in and immediately feel the way in which the air is different, certainly than a hospital, but, but that there's this, this sort of air of healing, and, and the people there greet you, and you feel this warmth, even though there are people dying there, right? That's what's going on there, but there's this absolute warmth. Um, it's a six-bed residential 
care facility offers 24-hour care for those facing a life expectancy of six months or less. Um, they also give mindful caregiving classes, death cafes, like a lot of educational efforts. So it's a beautiful example of some of what people are trying to sort of push towards as we rehabilitate our relationship with these questions. Um, BJ is a doctor, a teacher, an advocate, um, a, a personal hero and friend of mine. So we are in very good hands to learn about this. Um, so BJ, give us a little bit, you know, you had an experience early in life that introduced you to palliative care um, and then went on to become a doctor. And, and I think you've said it's been sort of surprising how few people in the general public actually understand what it is. So can you just educate us all a little bit? Yeah, thank you, Courtney. And thank you, Brother Dan. Um, and, you know, this is a very, as Courtney pointed out, um, we're going to be jumping around. It's an interesting, there's a lot of three different stories here. And I get very excited when I start talking about palliative care. So on the heels of some of the sorrow that Dan imparted also, you, <laughs> if it doesn't feel too perverse, you might see me a little animated. And I guess that's sort of part of the picture here is yeah. that as we start thinking about it, you cannot peel away death from life. They are absolutely related. Okay, so the, part of the problem is we've sequestered the two as so somehow they can be removed. Um, so you're going to hear a, sort of a full emotional spectrum from us, and that's part of the joy. Mm -hmm. So with that, um, so palliative care is, 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 an, is deeply uh, misunderstood field. Uh, so it did grow out of hospice. The hospice grew up in uh, the UK and came to the US in the mid-70s as a social model of care. And in fact, in a lot of ways, it was anti-medical. Um, there was a countercultural component, bless you, component to it. Um, so there's a lot to say about that. But essentially, in the 1980s, Medicare got in the business of hospice. And when we discuss hospice now, much as Dan was saying, you know, this idea of we have six months or less to live, that's when we become hospice eligible. Um, that's all an insurance designation. There's nothing magical about the six-month mark, okay? Um, so there are some problems within the insurance designation around hospice, which has given rise to the field of palliative care to grow up around, around hospice and around end of life. So simply put, palliative care is this multidisciplinary pursuit of quality of life and the mitigation of suffering. Okay, that's it. And Say that one more time for us so we can all take it. Okay, in. yeah, it's really, be, if there's one takeaway from me, that, that would be it. Um, so palliative care is the multidisciplinary pursuit of quality of life and the mitigation of suffering. Okay. There are other longer, more detailed definitions out there, World Health Organization, the CMS, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. So, but that's it in a nutshell. So for example, uh, as Dan pointed, I also work at UCSF uh, and teach and practice there at the Cancer Center. So I see a lot of patients who are nowhere near death, um, maybe years away. And some of my patients are even in remission, uh, aren't technically even sick anymore, but they are still suffering. Okay, so you don't have to be dying to receive palliative care. You do have to have, you do have to be struggling in some way. Right? That's the currency in our field. So the field is, is, is like hospice, it includes a doctor, a social worker, nurse, chaplain, because the, the idea of suffering, of course, is a very complex, subjective, as is quality of life. These are, there's no one discipline, one field, one way of approaching the subject. So it has to be a, a, a dynamic conversation. All right, so um, does that make sense? We can move off that? Okay. Um, you know, palliative care is still very, is relatively underdeveloped. It's relatively a small field. It is growing very rapidly for all the reasons Courtney pointed out. Um, well, not, not to mention, isn't it, even taking apart the demographic reality that I painted, isn't it insane that it's a small field? Given how you just defined it, it seems like we are all yeah. needing palliative care at some point, or probably multiple points in our lives. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. Right. So, okay, I love saying, I love asking this question. Who here hasn't suffered? <laughs> I'm still batting 0% on that question. No one has ever raised their hand to that question. So yeah, this is in fact part of life. And one of the great joys about working in this field and one of the reasons it's sort of revolutionary. So you think about other fields in medicine, like cardiology. It's defined around an organ, right? Or um, oncology, defined around a disease or a sequence of diseases, a series of diseases. So palliative care revolves around suffering in the human condition. That is a revolutionary idea. 
and it's a universal welcoming. It's an invitation to everybody because we all go through this. And it's one of the things I love about the field is with that subject matter, it's this great sort of sly way to upload the humanities into healthcare, philosophy into healthcare, and my personal favorite, design and aesthetics. Um, you know, look where we all have come far to be in this beautiful place. And what does it do to us to be around beauty and the immediacy of tending to our senses? That has a lot to do with how we make sense of our life and how we, uh, a great salve for suffering. So it's this great excuse to bring in other things that aren't traditionally part of medicine. And in this way, uh, it's part of, I mean, in a way, the first patient for the field is the healthcare system in and of itself. All right, so. It, it, it's not like healthcare was really actually designed per se as a system. It's kind of just organically found its way. But for the most part, it is essentially uh, a disease-centric model. It has revolved around diseases or body parts like we talked about. Um, so the person inhabiting those diseases, has you can be made to feel incidental. <laughs> you know, you're like a vector for the disease. Mm -hmm. And you know, spend time in a hospital, they're, they're designed for throughput. Um, you know, that, there's some real truth to that. Mm -hmm. And I don't mean to vilify it. There's some, there's some good reason around that. But what palliative care heralds is what's happening now is a shift. This is sort of a design corrective, I like to say. Because it turns out people sort of are important in this mix. Both as patients as well as providers. Mm -hmm. Right? So now all of a sudden, we're moving towards this patient-centered or human-centered model of care. And that's not just a sort of a tagline. That's very real. And this field is sort of ushering that in. That's so. great. That's really helpful. Right? I feel smarter. Do you all feel smarter? That was very, very helpful. Um, so I want to get uh, Dr. Carbo Sass's voice in here. And I'm thinking a lot of, as I'm hearing you guys, that, that two themes that are rising up are control and suffering. Right? These are two words that you both used a lot. And so let's, let's take a mental mind shift to how control and suffering are showing up in your life and in your work, SAS. And I'll give a little bit of a preamble that um, you know we are among greatness here. He's the Director of Health Systems Policy Planning and Information in the Ministry of Health and Sanitation of Sierra Leone. Um, he's done incredible work around child uh, and maternal mortality, um, a, you know, a long, storied, incredible career. But what I really want to go right to the heart of because of our shortness of time is that in this current Ebola outbreak, um, SAS is one of the people who looked at uh, what was happening around control and suffering in Sierra Leone, right? There was a problem because a lot of Ebola was spreading through burial practices, through traditional burial practices. And so in response to that, many development folks and healthcare workers kind of set, came in and said, as soon as the body is dead, we just have to get it out of here. There can be no burial practices. And, and so take us to that moment that you've, you've talked about where you go to meet with, and by the way, this was not his job description at the time at all, um, but he had an insight and a, and a volition to say, how can I be part of the solution at this urgent moment, and went to go meet with a tribal chief and have a conversation about how can we figure out a, a way to collaborate and honor people's need for some control over the burial practices um, and not create the sort of double suffering of losing someone and then not even getting to bury them in the way that feels dignified. Will you take us to that moment? Uh, yeah, oh, th thank you very much. Well, this came about, you see, with the start of Ebola, we got advice, especially in terms of education, that we were giving to, our, uh, to people on what Ebola was all like, because it was the first time it was appearing in that part of the world. And part of the education said there is a new disease that is around, and 80% of the people will die, and medical science has no medicine for it. And so, in essence, the message we were giving to our people is that don't bother to come to us because we cannot help you. I mean, if 80% are going to die anyway and we, and, and, uh, and we do not have any medicine, do not come. And so the initial ones who came to the facilities, when they died, we knew, well, the head service knew that these, the, the corpses were highly infectious, so they just went ahead and buried them. Little did we know that it was create, it was going against the traditional African values, which value the, the sick and the dead so much. There is so much close affinity of the, the, especially the living and the dead, that in some areas, the dead are buried right in, in the houses, right, in, in, the, in the compounds, 
because people feel there is that life after death, there is that bonding between the living and the dead. And so doing this, it sort of got the community members uh, not happy with the system. Mm -hmm. And so, the, and especially when their traditional religious leaders died as a result of the disease, and they saw them, the the, 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 the suspicion initially was that. Uh, we were killing them in the hospitals. Mm -hmm. It was because if you say you cannot treat them and then they go and die in the hospital, it means we are killing them because we do not want to um, uh, get, um, uh, 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 get them to spread the disease. And so they, at first we were accused of um, uh, killing people in the hospitals, mm -hmm. those that we are sick. So what we did was say, fine, now let us take some of these corpses of the dead and go and show them so that they see that the, the corpses were, I mean, were actually the people that were not killed and were not using it for any uh, 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 medical experiment or whatever. Mm -hmm. So as soon as they opened the bag and then showed them, that, that same moment, community members just rushed and then started pelting stones at our workers and then grabbed the corpses, took the corpses away and went to wash and bury in the traditional African fashion. I mean, giving honor to the dead is very, very much Af uh, traditional. Yeah. So this, uh, with, with this now, we just saw a hike in the number of cases. Yeah. We just saw, and, and it was happening from town to town, from region to region. And this was decimating whole villages. All villages were gone. Fam there was not a, any single family member in some district which had not lost um, their Mm -hmm. which had not lost a, a, a loved one, not a single family that had not lost a loved one. So something needed to be done. Mm -hmm. But then I had worked in this district before mm -hmm. because when uh, the war was coming to an end, we needed to go in and reestablish healthcare. And I was the head of the team that reestablished healthcare where this Ebola started. And most of the chiefs and other traditional leaders here, they were my friends. Mm -hmm. So I knew then that the secret to stopping the halt of this delay in going there to um, talk with them and then see what the problems were and it was when I went there that they explained to me exactly what I have just explained mm -hmm. and so with this I went on to dialogue with them what do we do in fact you, you, you we need to understand that the virus just like humans is it is wants only wanting eternal life Mm -hmm. That is what the virus wants. It means if there is somebody is dead and the virus is within, the virus wants to get out of that dead corpse to go to a living person. Mm -hmm. That's exactly so. We needed to get rid of these corpses without the family members touching it. But at the same time, we want them to participate so that they don't get furious, they don't get angry and remove the corpse. So that is where we had the dialogue. What do we do, chief? And the chief told me, well, if you can allow us to bury, you give us the equipment, you give us everything we can do. And then I said, but chief, this is something technical. Mm -hmm. You cannot just do it, and we do not want every family member to be doing it. So what we can do is we train some of your people, some of your young people, with our teams, and then we teach them how to do everything, and then how to don all the equipment, and then how to do the wrapping and packaging. Mm -hmm. And even where there's a coffin, we'll use the coffin. Even where there's a shroud, we'll use the shroud. But of course, donning our PPE and everything, we'll do everything, package the coffin, and then you show us the grave where you want the, to bury the person, your loved one. We we will bury there and mark the grave, but make sure you do not go there for at least a week because we know within that period everything would have been, you know, the virus would have been dead or whatever. Mm -hmm. So when when we when he explained, we 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 struck that dialogue and I saw that this particular chief and of course even the elders who were there had agreed to this. Mm -hmm. Then it became now my point of going back to headquarters and then talking with some of my colleagues there, forming a team which we call the burial pillar because we had several pillars, the treatment pillar. So I went to form the burial pillar and I became the chief burial officer. That is formulating policies now. And that he, we call, you yeah. didn't just become this. He literally went to the boss and said, this is not my job at all, but please appoint me the head of burials so I can change the tide of Ebola. I mean, the, the courage and the responsibility that that takes is just stunning to me. We have to pause for that, because it didn't just happen, <laughs> Thank right? You. Thank you. Yeah. And, and so this singular intervention was what changed the tide of, um, uh, um, uh, of the, the, the spread of the Ebola. So we're now going from town to town. I was now going from village to village, trying to, uh, for, number one, teach the staff how to do it, telling them to incorporate community members, and also talking to the communities about this new venture. But it was really difficult at that time, because even when I came home, I couldn't stand my family coming to hug me. Mm -hmm. I knew probably something was wrong with me or whatever. I couldn't stand even 
leaving my family, nobody coming, my kids, so I had to stay in another room. And at some point during those three, four months, I had to move all of my family away from the house. I was alone staying in the house because at each point I came home, I thought probably I'm infected, probably I was going to die or whatever. But thank God that time is passed, it's over six months now, so I know, well, we were successful with it. And today, as I stayed, we have very few cases, maybe just one or two per day. And these are what are filtering in from neighboring Guinea, which is yet to put this under control. Mm. So powerful. I mean, another thing I'm hearing from all three, and you know, I think is like the secret of everything in life, but is relationships, right? You know, Dan, you talking about Brittany's relationship with her patient, her relationship with herself, you know, wanting to have that control, her relationship with you, talking about the relationship in palliative care between people who can can you know alleviate suffering and the patient the relationship that and intelligence that SAS had to say I have relationships with these chiefs let me go and figure out how I can broker a different way right um, BJ will you talk a little bit about because I, I one thing that I've learned so much from you about is is not the role of relationship but the uh, role of the sensual mm -hmm. in the dying process because I think a lot of us think about when we die we want to be near the people we love that feels very intuitive but one of the things I've learned to BJ is that many people, the last thing they have, other than their connections to the people they love, are their senses. And maybe not even all of them, but some of them. So talk a little bit about the role of the sensory in the dying process. Um, yeah, it is a favorite subject. Um, <laughs> and let me just correct you, because I, I make this mistake, too. Apparently, sensual has some sexual overtones. No. I think the word you meant is sensuous. <laughs> So anyway, uh, just to correct a little bit there. Wait, um, you can go tell them although, the death panel is very sexy, actually. <laughs> um, but right, I mean, so right, we are, what do we know that dies, right? We know the body dies. And what is this body thing that moves us around the planet? But this sort of sack of sensors, right? We smell, we touch, we feel our way through. And we talk about intuition, we feel a certain, I mean, even thinking has a feeling component to it. Meditation, what is that but paying attention to the sensation of your breath? So our bodies are this thing that keep us on this planet, that tell us we're on this planet. Um, and if you just think about, again, this entwined relationship between living and dying, how do we spend our days but seeking out food? And not just any old food pellet. I mean, we spend a fair amount of time on something that tastes great, smells great, looks great. It is a symbolic thing that we offer to one another. So there's, um, you know, I've already referenced the mountains around us. Um, so you just start thinking about the role of your senses in your life. They tell you you're alive. They reward you for being alive. Um, you know, they're, they're, I just can go, we could go on and on about it, right? So now if you start thinking about, if you put yourself towards the end of life, where, you know, and we know a lot of things about how people suffer towards the end of life. People are very worried about a couple things. In, at least in California, there's some data around this. One is being a burden, you know, being a burden to people they love. And there's a lot to say about that piece, because I think we as a society have a long way to go just reward being versus doing all the time. Um, we, we also worry about being at peace spiritually. And we worry about pain. Those are the top three, at least in California. All right. So you start thinking about that first one around being a burden. You know, one of the things is that defines our lives, our identity around our job, our role as a provider in a family or whatever it may be. But very often, one of the things that's dying before death is that role. And that's where it can be so darn difficult. So for some folks who are losing, they're watching their bodies sort of fall apart in front of their eyes, um, their, uh, their sort of purpose may dissolve. But one of the things that's left are their senses. I mean, even if you have just access to one sense, whether it's sight or sound or smell, you have at least this potential to feel connected to people around you and to this planet. And so if we really are interested in living all the way until we die, spending some time, serious effort around the senses, you know, this doesn't make its way into normal health care, but maybe it will start. Um, this is a great way to stay in touch uh, until your very last breath. Mm. So that's where we spend a fair amount of time, increasing amount of time. If you come to Zen Hospice Project, one of the most important places in, our pla in, in the house is the kitchen. And amazing, right? Because a lot of our patients can't eat anything anymore, or very little. But as I referenced earlier, there's the smell. There's this symbolic nature of cooking for one another. Families gather around the meal, et cetera. So, yeah, it's, a, it's a big one. Yeah. 
It's a really big one. And I think one of the, the places where you see such the contrast between the hospital version of death and the version of death that you guys are creating at Zen Hospice Project, right? Um, so, so Dan, pick up with us about the legislation piece, because you and I were talking about you're, you're now this like lobbyist all of a sudden and like yeah. find yourself talking to, to political representatives and, and the public also trying to help people understand. And there's so many misunderstandings about this legislation. You know, we've talked about some of them as the slippery slope that if you create this legislation then so many people are going to elect to die, et cetera. So, yeah. so debunk a couple of, of those misunderstandings so that we can leave the room smarter about what this actually means. Sure. So I, I talked to the, the uh, the safeguards, the parameters by which somebody is um, granted the prescription. Um, the <clears throat> regarding slippery slope or uh, mention to this um, uh, something that could lead to other um, unintended consequences, because we do now have 17 years of data from Oregon. Um, there hasn't been one single reported case of all of those things that the opposition loves to bring up um, in 17 years, not one case. Uh, and now we find in California, um, those that are opposed, they're bringing up the exact same arguments and just trying to um, you know, kind of muddy the waters uh, in that regard. Um, but I think Brittany's story, Brittany's message is uh, we've gotten it being the tipping point where now people are recognizing that, no, that's not the reality. Um, that a person who um, uh, finds himself in the predicament that Brittany was in is simply taking control of their own dying process. They're not suicidal. My wife didn't want to die. She wanted to live. Uh, somebody who is suicidal is looking to end their own life. That's not what Brittany was doing. She was simply looking to control the amount of suffering that she would have to endure at the end of life. Um, and so, yeah, the, the, this legislation that, that I continue, I, I've met with senators and assembly members and, and the governor's staff. Um, this legislation, once it's passed, it, it does not result in more people dying. It simply results in fewer people suffering. And that was really the message that Brittany was trying to get out. So. That's great. Thank you very much. Now, Sass, we were talking about the, the life expectancy in Sierra Leone is about 50 years old, you said? Yeah. So that's an important thing for us to wrap our minds around, right? That how different the situation you're in is in terms of not the Ebola crisis, but just sort of the typical person's experience of death. Um, and, and you had also talked about that it's such a religious country, that that, and, and a more homogenous religious country than here in the U.S. where we have a million competing forces of, of spirituality talking about death and dying. So, so from your perspective and, and as a doctor, um, what do you think when you hear about sort of the U.S. and the, the you know, dollar amounts I named in the beginning and, and sort of all the ways in which we're getting it really wrong, um, are there ways that you feel like Sierra Leone or, or the Global South generally is getting it right that we should be looking at? I mean, are there things that you think you guys are wiser about than we are that we can learn from? Thank you very much. Well, actually, the situations are, are, are different. But um, uh, given my, my uh, experience in life, see my training and everything, yeah. that has taken me through several continents and yeah. right up to the time I, and my practice, probably I have a bigger view of things. Right. But then uh, for probably the 20 years or so of my practice in Sierra Leone, nobody Nobody has ever asked me to, um, to, to, to do a similar thing because the traditional African values do not um, uh, permit uh, the taking of one's life or even, the, um, or, or even taking somebody else's life. It's difficult. In fact, this was why, as I said with the Ebola, they were suspicious that we were ending people's lives and so they become violent. It does not support that at all. Mm -hmm. And uh, as a doctor, most of the time, during my working experience, even if we knew that this patient was dying, it was the tender loving care that people mattered most. Everybody will know that the person was dying. And in fact, sometimes we will even discharge the patient to go home. But that sense of community is so much in Africa that you'll find people being around that person. 
all the time, being around the person until seeing the person exits. This is the, what, uh, 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 what it takes there. Mm -hmm. And the other thing also as a doctor, what is expected of me is not to perform that magic or whatever, but just to show that empathy for the patient, you know, just to call once a day or just go say, how is the patient doing or whatever. People appreciate that very much. Mm -hmm. They appreciate that very much. But one thing they will never do is to ask me to, to the, and I, as I say, it, it has never happened and I don't expect it to happen in, in the near future. However, given my experience as a doctor, again, as I say, I mean, having worked with people from different other perspectives, it is that situations might arise in which we think there is no need to prolong the suffering. But then, as, um, uh, let me take you back to something like um, uh, um, uh, 17 years ago, when I was just a young medical officer working. There was this lady of about 80 who developed a gangrene of the right foot. Mm -hmm. So. As, as an African and a very young doctor then, I was so um, passionate to try to do something for her, you know, preparing her for surgery and everything so that she can get an, an amputation. But my then boss, who was a, a very senior man, he just tapped my shoulder, he's a young man. He said, why not just leave her to die? This was a doctor, a senior one, but to me, I, f I felt within myself that this was not correct. Okay, because as I say, during those my young, during those my early days, I thought I should do everything for her to make her live. I was so passionate. But then he said, "Why not leave?" I said, "Number one, preparing her now. She's almost toxic now. He said, you prepare her now, she will die on the table, and then we'll get the bad name. It's better to just let her go." It was difficult for me at that time, and still to this day, I keep thinking that probably. If we had just risked it, probably she might have lived. I keep thinking to this day. Mm -hmm. so, that, so this is the type of experience that we have there. And it is difficult, even with community members, if I had gone to tell them that, look, you know what, um, uh, we could have done this, but my boss says we shouldn't do this. I, I, I never did that at all. Mm -hmm. I never did that. But what we just gave was that um, uh, tender loving care, being there every day with them, as, um, uh, giving painkillers, um, you know, talking with the family and, the, and uh, giving them that, that support until the lady died and to this day the the respect of the family I still have it and then we are still in communication and they they, they liked me for that simply because I was there for them mm -hmm. yeah that's very powerful and that's you know one of the the huge kind of can of worms here is the emotional lives of doctors right the emotional lives of, of medical professionals who I think Atul Gawande and being mortal for those of you who read it probably felt this too managed to really unpack that part of this is about doctors learning to talk about death because as you pointed out their whole thing is about you know killing disease not being realistic about quality of life and and what people have left to live and and what that means about their own powers or lack thereof at different moments right so it's it's very powerful to hear a doctor be honest about those kinds of moments and that kind of confusion um, yeah you want, and, and we're going to move to audience after this so if you're thinking of a question um, be ready to we're going to have runners who go to folks so um, after Dan finishes you're welcome to raise your hand Thank, and so this came up uh, in a luncheon yesterday that we were talking about as far as doctors um, being able to talk to Brittany about the reality of what she was facing. We were surprised, shocked of how uncomfortable certain physicians were. Uh, and, you know, this is a brain surgeon. This is a neuro-oncologist um, early on that were so uncomfortable in telling my wife what the reality of what she was facing. Um, and... I think that's where, along with improvements in palliative care and hospice, but it doesn't matter the physician, doesn't matter what field they're in, um, I think there needs to be a shift in that so that doctors recognize the very mm -hmm. statement that you started this out with, that we will all die. None of us make it out of this alive, right? Mm -hmm. and, and so that comfort, developing that so that they could have that conversation. I mean, we had one physician who was literally telling us that uh, you know, the, the enormity of the tumor and what this meant, and he was backing out of the room. Mm -hmm. And Brittany asked, challenged him. She said, you are my doctor, right? And he's like, yes. And, and she's like, well, sit down. I mean, <laughs> where are you going? It, it, was, it was really surprising um, that you know, they, they are so uncomfortable. And, and I think that, that in and of itself, and, and to what Sass was mentioning, that once that, um, that, that comfort level, compassion, empathy, once um, we get to a point where um, that conversation of death, uh, we all have a beginning, 
a middle, and an end. The beginning part is our birth. Our parents are very happy with that. We, of course, don't remember it. The middle part, that's this. That's this crazy thing we call life. And, and, and make the best of it and do everything you can with life. But then there is that end part, and that end part is death. Um, <clears throat> we just need to stop being so afraid of, of, of that last part and, and you know, be okay talking about it. So, um, and I think that, that education for physicians, for doctors, to be comfortable talking about it will go a long way. Yeah. So with that, let's talk about it, right? Dan gave us the charge. I think we have mics here and here, so maybe we'll start in this front row. You and then you, that would be great. Thank you. Um, I have a question for Dan, and uh, since I don't live in the United States, please just allow me sort of five seconds to provide some context. Um, in Canada, the Supreme Court um, passed legislation allowing physician-assisted death, and this just happened in February. Right. Now the tough work begins because now the um, provinces um, have to define what that means and there'll be various parameters. So my question is this, you mentioned that your wife self-administered. Yeah. Um, there are a number of people that are not able to and yet should have that option. Can you please talk to us a little bit about perhaps the controversy and what your feelings are? I don't know if it's controversial here, sure. but just talk a little bit about that option. No, um, thank you. A, a, a good question. And um, yes, in the way that the statute is written in Oregon, the patient has to self-administer. I think, and, and I'm not sure about this part, I think there can be, um, um, uh, it, it can be set up where the patient simply, if they're unable to actually grasp, uh, you know, the, the five ounces and, and drink it, that um, it can be um, set up so that they, the, the, the individual pushes a button and then the medicine would be administered. And I'm not sure if it was, would be through a nasal, pharyngeal, or, you know, something of how the, the, the medicine would be administered. Um, so in that regard, I, I, I don't have the details, but I've heard that that is a condition that, that can be put into practice. Um, as far as it being administered from, from a third person, that's, well, that's euthanasia. And, and that's something that both Brittany and I and, and the organization that I work with, that, that that's maybe where taking it a little bit too far, slippery slope, that was, was that the intentions of, of the, the patient? Um, so there are a lot of challenging um, um, details and, and even working through the legislative stuff in, in California, we find ourselves, well, the devil's in the details, so that's where we need to be and, and, and figure all that out so that we are providing protections and, and there isn't abuse in place. So I, I know I'm not answering the question directly, but um, no, you bringing it up is, is something that um, uh, it, it's, it, it's absolutely part of this conversation of that self-administering, um, but then also I've had people ask questions about depending on the um, ailment that the individual has, some people, once they've reached only six months to live, they're already in a condition depending on the ailment that they're suffering from that um, you know, they may have needed to, um, you know, MS. They may have needed to make that request a year and a half before, but they still had a year and a half to live, and now once they're six months away, um, or you know, that six-month prognosis, they're in a state where they're unable to communicate their wishes, and so, you know, then what do you do? Um, so it, it is tough, um, and and I think the, the the legislators are trying to be as inclusive as possible to remove uh, or to keep people from suffering needlessly, but it is a case-by-case -case basis and, and um, it's, it's tough to make sure that, that we're, we're including as many people as we can from suffering, but unfortunately we don't have just a one-size-fits-all one um, solution or an answer. There's also, if you haven't seen it, a really interesting um, New Yorker article that I think just came out a couple weeks ago about the application of some of this thinking in Europe, even around mental illness. And it really brings up some of the complexities and gray areas and details that we're talking about. So if this is something that interests you, I would really recommend. We're not going to go into that in this panel because we don't have time, but there's some really interesting pieces there. Yes. I, I've been in 
a nurse for 50 years. I've taken care of a lot of patients who died. Mm -hmm. And I'm always wondering, how do we choose? I've seen many different physicians. And I'm interested, Dr. Miller, to understand, how did you choose your practice, your choice of practice? It's obvious mm -hmm. that you've gone through a lot of suffering. Mm -hmm. Did it influence you in your choice of palliative care? Could everyone hear the question? So, so this woman has been a nurse for 50 years. Thank you. Um, and she was asking Dr. Miller, which feels so formal. It's very respectful. But she was actually asking BJ um, what made him want to go into this, this field specifically. Yeah, thank you for the question. I, 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 my accident, my injuries were in college. And I had uh, previously no interest in medicine at all. So it, the, my experiences as a patient got me interested in medicine, period. Um, and then I only chose to go, into medical so, uh, to go into medicine once I was out of college. So I was bouncing around. I was an art history major. Um, so there's a lot to say about that, Georgia. <laughs> I had some conversation about that. Um, but so to answer your question, though, as I got into through medical school, I thought I would go into rehab medicine, work with other amputees, other disabled folks. Because the interest, I'm, I'm not particularly interested in medical science for its own sake. I was interested in getting this bag of tricks that I could use to apply and help, yeah, and make sense of what had happened to me. So, uh, but I fell out of love with rehab medicine for a number of reasons. Bottom line was when I got, uh, it was, my sister had died. And I was at the end of medical school, and I decided to go back and live with my parents to do my internship. And then I was going to get out of medicine. I was done with medicine. I was in that disillusionment phase. A lot to say about that, too. But most everyone who's in healthcare at some point, the idealism that you go into the training with and the realities of practicing medicine at some point, it's very hard to, to reconcile those. Anyway, during my internship, I got uh, turned on to palliative care. Okay? And that was a real aha moment because here was a place where all my experiences were directly relevant. Here was a field that embraced the subjective realm, the individuality, the individual experience of living. The rest of medicine is always trying to push you towards objectivity. They never really tell you that objectivity is not possible. I mean, it can be relatively objective. But here's a field that celebrates individual uh, being. Okay, so that was a huge deal. Number two was, here was a field that was clearly underdeveloped. For all the reasons we're talking, there's a huge need and a growing need. And here's a field that needed people to work in it. So that was very telling, too. And then I think the big one for me was probably, um, well, I already referenced this idea of a way to upload design and other cool, interesting things in the mix. Then I think the final thing was, here was uh, this incredible unifying force, which is our mortality, right? And that was thrilling. It is the least esoteric field imaginable. It is pan-relevant. So that was, that was probably the final piece that really made me just fall in love. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Let's go. Um, question back here. Looks like right here in the yellow. Yeah. Thank you, Dustin. Uh, yes. Um, I want to circle. My name is Richard, and I had the privilege of practicing internal medicine and geriatrics for 20 years, and I've been in hospital administration for the last 20. And my question. I want to circle back to your statistic mm -hmm. about. 5% of the population and 50% of the expenditures and mm -hmm. the fact that we as a country spend three times other Western industrialized countries and still have a lot of people not getting primary care, preventative care, etc. And my question is for Dr. Miller. Um, the physicians um, are on a fee-for-service basis and that coupled with their discomfort on this topic uh, is a huge barrier uh, for patients. And it's only 20 some odd years since Cruzan decision gave us as individuals the right to decline things. But in my experience over the last 20 years, physicians are very reluctant to let go for whatever the reasons are. Do you have any great ideas in your program um, to increase the length of stay in hospice. In other words, get patients to have the benefit of that instead of the last two days of their lives, maybe like for two weeks. Mm -hmm. And what are you doing to um, objectively screen patients, share that appropriateness with the providers, encourage them to have the conversations with the patients instead of hanging on to them mm -hmm. 
past the point. It's yeah. So there's it's complicated, and and you're right on. I sh I mean that is that is as true assessment as I can. Uh, I, I agree with you. There's a big problem. Um, one of the things that's starting to happen uh, is, and really our object as an organization and really as a field is around culture shift and culture change. That's really what we're kind of getting at. Um, because it's not like doctor knows everything, patient knows nothing. You know, in, the, in terms of how we suffer, how we live, how we die, this is something we all have insights into. So there's this leveling of the playing field that's happening. I'm just seeing in my, you know, when I did my fellowship in palliative care in 2006, I was you feel like something of a leper in the hospital. I was out east at Mass General and Dana-Farber, these old bastions of the old, you know, these great medical centers. And you know, what this palliative care stuff? We don't need you. You know, it was this. And now, you know, at UCSF, also a powerful medical school, we see chief residents now electing to do uh, fellowships in palliative care. So something's shifting. So that's happening. But to your question about what, what do we do about it, well, one is, I realized when I, you know, in, at UCSF at the Cancer Center, so many reluctant physicians who didn't refer to us early on, case by case, would come along and we'd make really good on that case, on that situation, and it would help them do their jobs as oncologists better. And little by little, one by one, all of a sudden this spread like wildfire, really. It just really caught on within our cancer center. And then people were proud to share their patients with us in the palliative care service. So you kind of do it by one person, one patient, one case at a time. We've also started to infuse all the medical school curricula with palliative care education at every level at UCSF. That's unusual. Most medical schools don't do that yet. A lot of people are fond of talking about they'll require, say, a you know, I don't know, a psychiatrist still has to rotate through OBGYN. He may never deliver a child, right? But they don't necessarily have to rotate through palliative care. That's a little backwards. So we're trying to upend the medical education. In California, there's an institute for palliative care at the CSU level, the California State University level. It's driving palliative care into undergraduate level training. All right, so there's all this work at the professional level. We have a curriculum for home health aides and certified nursing assistants, traditionally the lowest rung on the totem pole, but totem pole of the professional caregiving ladder. But these guys are with patients in ways that doctors never are. So we're trying to find these points of influence in the system at the professional level. Um, then we're also, one of the things I love about having a house, and I'm sorry, I know it's a long answer to your question, but there's just a lot going on. Um, one of the great joys about having a house is that we have a place where people can come in. And it's a great way to pierce the veil. So we have public programming. You know, we'll have, we have an artist-in-residence program. And so we have this. We reward people for paying attention, in a phrase. So we have these deaf cafes at the house. The public comes in. And all of a sudden, they feel a little bit more comfortable with the subject. So we're sort of working the demand and the supply side best we can. And, and these beds are saving a tremendous amount of money compared to oh, yeah. a bed, equivalent bed in a hospital, right? Yes. So no, yeah. Another piece of the sort of economic argument that we have to make all the time. By the way, you know, palliative care is the, is the, is the perfect field for the triple aim. You know, Don Berwick's triple aim. Better care for individuals, better health of populations, lower cost. Palliative care does all of those things just naturally. Because it turns out when you inform your patients, about all their options, most of the time, you don't have to ration care. Most of the time, we choose the less invasive, less intensive, less futile care. And we, it automatically saves money. So we don't have to talk about rationing at all. But we have a relationship with UCSF at Zen Hospice. They lease half of our beds. And we save them about a million bucks a year after they've paid net, after they've paid for those beds, our costs in those beds. Because what it does is frees up acute care hospital beds within the medical center where they can charge about 10 times what we uh, cost. So, so if we had another hour, we would talk about how do we scale Sorry. up yeah, yeah, this yeah, yeah. project, which is part of what I'm obsessed with, is yeah. like thinking through how do we take what BJ has figured out um, and his team has figured out and replicate it. Unfortunately, we are out of time, but before mm. we leave, I want to I zoom down the panel here, and I'd like each of you to tell us a little bit something about your hope for your own death. Ooh. <laughs> 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 you BJ, you want to start us off? <laughs> well, I'm not going to die. I mean, I... <laughs> <laughs> uh, somebody else. One hope for my own death. Doesn't have to be comprehensive. Just one thing that for you feels important. As few, I probably, my answer is probably uh, that I have as few regrets as possible. Thank you. As an African, as a Christian, I believe death is not always a transition mm. to another phase. So to me, 
going in my sleep probably is best, but then I believe it's a transition to another phase. That is all. Mm. Yeah. Thank you. Um, for me, after the year and a half that we went through and, and seeing in the end what, what um, the peaceful passing that Brittany had, um, and it was my younger brother was there in the room, and so were some of her friends. And we all kind of looked at each other saying, you know, if I live to be 100, I want that. Mm. That's mm. what I would. That's the way that she died. We should all be so lucky. So mm. from my perspective, it would, yeah, that peaceful passing of, of you know, and having that bit of control, um, it, it afforded her a great deal of relief. So. Thank you. That's profound. So what wisdom among these three men, right? Can we give them a huge round of applause? That was Dan Diaz, Courtney Martin, B.J. Miller, and Sam Cargbo, recorded live on June 27, 2015 at Spotlight Health, a health-focused series that kicks off the Aspen Ideas Festival. The Aspen Ideas Festival is the nation's premier gathering place for leaders from around the globe and across disciplines to engage in deep, inquisitive discussion and tackle the ideas and issues that shape our lives and challenge our times. You can discover more about the festival at our website, aspenideas.org. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast, Aspen Ideas To Go, on iTunes or other popular podcasting services. You can follow the festival at Aspen Ideas on Twitter and Facebook. I'm Trisha Johnson. Editorial Director of Public Programs at the Aspen Institute. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.